Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Glad to be with you. And uh, today we've got a few uh, topics that... uh, Actually, we're going to range over a wide variety of topics. We've got Dr. Matthew Bunsen with us in the second hour. And uh, Matthew and I will be going over uh, a raft of new stories uh, of the Church uh, globally. And there's a lot to talk about. So that's coming up. Uh, Pope Francis, by the way, thanked the Vatican Press Corps recently for reporting on scandals in the Church. And, um, you know, it was kind of nice to hear him thanking those of us who are in the world of journalism. Uh, we're also going to take time with uh, Peggy Stanton for our usual look at uh, the Sunday Gospel reading. Uh, this, this coming Sunday's is a really short and punchy Gospel reading. It's it's Jesus healed. This is at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter one, verses twenty one to twenty eight. And Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. You might remember last week uh, talking about the Gospel of Mark and how uh, he Mark is kind of the streamlined gospel. I mean, he, everything's fast. Uh, he uses the word immediately over and over again. So if it's funny this week. The very first uh, verse of Sunday's reading, verse 21, it says that, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. And then two verses down it says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And then (laughs) in the verse that follows this Sunday's reading, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Uh, the, after that, it's now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. <laughs> so this is Mark's style. Uh, he's moving things along, and these seven verses that we'll be looking at today, again, deal with the realm of demonic spirits and uh, Jesus having the authority over the unclean spirits. So that's coming up, and as I said, we've got a, a whole host of topics with Matthew Bunsen. I have some comments, too, uh, about gender ideology. But first, let's get the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, January 25th. It's the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. The Texas National Guard is continuing to add more razor wire along the border in Eagle Pass, despite a Supreme Court ruling that gives federal agents the power to cut it down. Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas is applauding this move. I'm proud of the great state of Texas. I'm proud of our governor. I'm proud of our state legislature because they're stepping up and defending our state from invasion. In a statement, Governor Greg Abbott says that Texas has the constitutional authority to defend and protect its borders. The trial of the mother of the Oxford High School shooter began today in Michigan. Jennifer Crumley is facing involuntary manslaughter for providing the means for her son to murder four people 
and leave seven others injured in 2021. One of the first to testify was Oxford High Assistant Principal Christy Marshall, who says she saw the shooter in a hallway. When he got close enough to me that I could, we were sharing the hallway, so he was kind of walking down the center and I was kind of over to the side, so that's, we're probably, what, three feet apart. I um, asked him if he's okay. It just didn't seem right that it would be him. The father of the shooter, James Crumley, is also facing charges but is being tried separately. Pope Francis is again warning about the dangers of unchecked artificial intelligence. Francis calling for worldwide regulation of the emerging technology during his message for the Roman Catholic Church's World Day of Social Communications, which will be held May 12th. And the director of the CIA is expected to help broker a deal to secure the release of the remaining hostages held by Hamas in Gaza. Reports say CIA Director Bill Burns will meet with officials from Israel and Qatar this weekend in Europe to try to negotiate a deal. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You know, we don't know what we don't know. And this is especially true when it comes to religion, theology, and the Catholic faith. Uh, As you know, I was baptized and raised Catholic, and I didn't really rebel against it until I was, I don't know, 13, 14 or so. And even then, it was hard to say it was rebellion. It was more just indifference. Um, But I look back on those days, and (laughs) I—it's embarrassing— you know, I'm embarrassed not so much by my ignorance, but by my cockiness. <laughs> and this, of course, is what adolescents are like, right? Adolescents think they know more than they do. Well, to the degree that we thought about it at all, again, adolescent boys in the 50s and early 60s, we lived with a two-tier spirituality. Those aiming for sainthood, like priests, nuns, and monks, had to be unmarried. They had to have vows of celibacy. That was the higher path to sanctity. And those of us who weren't going to be able to remain unmarried, or at least chaste, those of us who would marry eventually would settle for second place. Marriage isn't bad. After all, it's a sacrament. It's just less than great. Now, I'm not saying that's what the magisterium taught. No, I'm saying that this attitude formed the church culture into which I was born and raised during the 50s and early 60s in East Haven, Connecticut. And I remember, us seventh grade, I remember, adolescent Catholic boys joshing around and saying, sometimes in crude fashion, something like, good lordy, lordy, give me Debbie Maudie and I'll forget all about heaven. Give me a whole lot of time in purgatory. Silly stuff. And, well, there are passages in St. Paul which can be interpreted to see marriage as uh, not as acceptable uh, as singleness, but it's unclear. What is unmistakably clear, though, in St. Paul is what we now call the universal call to holiness. It wasn't new at the Second Vatican Council. It's universal, married or unmarried alike, and that was true when I was growing up in the 1950s and early 60s. Why didn't it get down into my head? I don't know. I mean, seventh graders, it's hard to get into their head anyways. But it was a distortion of Catholic spirituality. Would it have made a difference in my life? I have no idea. But I do know now 
in my adult life, it's made all the difference. Baptism unites us with Christ, and that's why we can be called saints in anticipation. His life is our identity. In 11 of St. Paul's 14 letters, all the baptized believers are called saints, and this is not because they were especially virtuous. The Corinthians in particular had serious moral and doctrinal problems. They were divisive. They approved incest. They had twisted understandings of the resurrection. But St. Paul calls them saints because it's expected that the life of God, the grace available in the sacraments and the scriptures in our life together as the Church of Jesus Christ, would carry us through to claim our full identity in Christ. We are saints in anticipation of fully sharing in his divine life. So St. Paul writes, Romans 1-7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, 1 Corinthians 1-1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, 2 Corinthians 1-1, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. And you could go on to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, to the saints in Christ at Colossae. The universal call to holiness is not an innovation of the Second Vatican Council. It runs throughout the entire New Testament. In fact, it's part of our DNA. We are all called to be saints, the lay state, every bit as much as the religious or the ordained. Now, throughout church history, this has had to be emphasized time and again. So St. John Chrysostom, again, in the 4th and 5th century, makes the point, quote, you certainly deceive yourself and are greatly mistaken if you think that there is one set of requirements for the person in the world and another for the monk. The difference between them is that one is married and the other is not. In all other respects, they will all have to render the same account, for all people must reach the same point. And this is what throws everything into disorder. The idea that only the monk is required to show a greater perfection while the rest are allowed to live in laxity? This is not true. It is not. Rather, Paul says the same philosophy or same way of life is demanded of all. In the early 20th century, uh, Leon Blois, the French Catholic novelist, makes this point in his novel, The Poor Woman. He closes with this line, really famous line, the only sadness is not to be saints, end quote. Why is this such a sadness? Because to be less than a saint is to be less than the man or woman you were created to be. This is the ultimate sadness, the ultimate despair. We are created for communion with God. But as Hebrews 12:14 warns, without holiness, no man shall see God. It's not proud or arrogant to aspire to become the saint God designed you to be. It's not arrogant to find your identity as a man or woman created in the image and likeness of God. That's our nature. And to fulfill our nature, we must become perfectly conformed to Christ. That is, become a person who perpetually knows the will of God and keeps it. Uh, I think people have a hard time getting this into their emotional life. Uh, they think it's somehow asking too much to desire to be a saint. Um, but look at the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, right? They're escaping Egypt. They don't strike me as particularly good candidates for sainthood. I mean, they moan and complain about their diet of manna. They 
carry out Operation Golden Calf. They belittle Moses. They gripe about God's leadership in the wilderness. They even long to go back to Egypt where they were slaves. But these ingrates are all called to holiness, perfection, maturity. Sainthood is not just for an elite holiness task force. I was going to say holiness is for the great unwashed masses, but after the exodus from Egypt, God's people have been washed in the waters of the Red Sea, which is a type of baptism. And then they hear God from Sinai reveal himself, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, as I, the Lord your God, am holy. St. Peter, our first pope, picks this command up in the New Testament as well. 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And so what, what is holiness? Well, it means to be set apart. It means to be unique, distinct, different. Holiness in humans refers to their being set apart for service to God. Um, human holiness is the imitation of God, becoming and acting like him. When we're holy, we are different, set apart, distinct from this world. We take our marching orders not from the world, the flesh, or the devil, but from the one whose kingdom doesn't originate in this world. Uh, He's the one who's creating a distinct and new humanity, born again through faith and baptism. You know, we've got the rebirth of the human race in Christ. Those of us who would think of marriage as second best should really wake up and notice that both the Old and New Testaments use marriage as the central analogy depicting the union between God and Israel, between Christ and the Church. I mean, the Scriptures start off with God presiding over the marriage of Adam and Eve, and the Scriptures end with the wedding supper of the Lamb, when Christ's bride, the Church, will be fully united with her bridegroom, Christ himself. Marriage is destined and designed by God to show forth his relationship to us. Under the Old Covenant, he's the husband. Israel is the spouse. Uh, In the New Testament, Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Uh, Gary Thomas, in his book, Sacred Marriage, really drives this home. He said, understanding the depth of these analogies is crucial as they help us determine the very foundation on which a truly Christian marriage is based. If I believe the primary purpose of marriage is is to model God's love for his church, I'll enter into this relationship and maintain it with an entirely new motivation, one that's hinted at by St. Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians. So we make it our goal to please him. So the goal of my marriage is to please God. I think that, again, as I said, we don't know what we don't know. And I didn't know a lot about marriage when I was a kid. That's true of all of us. But uh, even as I entered into marriage uh, when I was 20, what was I, 24 years old, um, you, make, you make these bold and audacious promises that if you really were to think about it, um, After 50 years of marriage, you'd wonder how in the world you got through it. But again, uh, a Catholic understanding of marriage is, in fact, one of the most motivating, um, uh, one of the most motivating activities uh, in this world. Let me switch gears here. Uh, 
because I just came across a news story from summer of 2023. It reported that Dr. John Haas, who's a former member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, uh, founder of the National Catholic Bioethics Center, he gave a commemoration address to Christendom College grads uh, in Front Royal, Virginia. And during the course of the address, John shared the comments of Benedict XVI from a private conversation they had at the Vatican nine years before, that's in, in 2014, the year after Benedict stepped aside as Pope. It's important to remember that these are the private opinions of Joseph Ratzinger. That's what John was sharing with the Christendom grads. Well, Pope Emeritus Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, predicted back in 2014 that gender ideology would be the next great challenge to the church. Okay, that shows insight, a good sense of the future back in 2014. But then he went on, and unsolicited, he predicted that gender ideology would be the final rebellion against God. Quote, gender ideology will be the ultimate rebellion against God the Creator, end quote. Well, John confessed that he was surprised by Benedict's remarks because they were so spontaneous. But here we are in 2024, and his words appear to be prophetic. And John points out that uh, we've been hit with a tsunami of transgender ideology, and we've got Catholic healthcare institutions being sued because they refuse to perform mutilating surgeries on men who want to be surgically altered to look like women or women who want to appear as men. You have Catholic academic institutions being sued and attacked for just wanting to continue to give witness to the truth of their students who are both male and female. I'll mention coming up March 2nd of this year, we'll have our annual Familiaris Consortio Conference, Father Gabriel Richard High School, Ave Maria Radio, and Emmaus Health. It's on gender ideology and the church. What is catechesis and why do we care? The job of catechesis is to reveal all the joy as well as the demands of the way of Christ, says the Catholic Catechism. The way of Christ is summed up in the catechesis of the Beatitudes. Jesus gave us the eight Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount. The Catholic Catechism tells us this teaching is the only path that leads to the eternal Beatitude, happiness, for which the human heart longs. The catechesis of sin and forgiveness challenges us. Unless man acknowledges that he is a sinner, states the Catechism, he cannot know the truth about himself, which is a condition for acting justly, and without the offer of forgiveness, man could not bear the truth. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. We just did our parish mission a couple weeks ago now, and I suggested that in the course of the mission that we do something like a, a little mini spiritual assessment of our lives. I don't have to show this to anybody, but a great chance for us just to, with real honesty, just between us and Jesus, ask ourselves some questions. First question, given the fact that half the Catholics don't think God is even personal, would be to ask ourselves that. Do I think God is personal? And then to ask myself, do I think a relationship with Jesus is possible? Do I have a relationship with Jesus? And if so, what's it look like? And then perhaps a little bit more awkwardly or painfully to ask Jesus from his perspective, 
What's the friendship that we have with him look like? How would he describe our friendship with him? That might be a hard conversation to have. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord, the majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh? If your sins are as scarlet, oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as snow. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We turn our attention to this Sunday's Gospel reading. It's uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And with me to uh, reflect on this Gospel reading is Peggy Stanton, author of From the White House to the White Cross. Peggy is a dame of the Order of Malta. She was ABC News' first female Washington correspondent and has hosted many programs with us at Ave Maria Radio, including the Malta Minute with the Catechism, which has now been turned into another book. Uh, called The Order of Malta, Minutes with the Catechism. Peggy, good to have you. Good to be with you. So what we've got is a very short but intense gospel <laughs> yeah. reading. Mm-hmm. So let me go to it here. Let All me right. get to the text itself. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Then they came to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes, and not as the scribes, excuse me. In their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him and said, Quiet. 
come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsed him, and with a loud cry came out of him. All were amazed and asked one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. His fame spread everywhere throughout the whole region of Galilee. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. That had to be that had to be quite a moment. I wonder. I wonder if this the fellow with the unclean spirit was a regular attender at synagogue, <laughs> <laughs> or was he this there for this? Occasion? He attended services regularly. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know. that's a thought I hadn't had, Al. It's yeah. very interesting. Well, and the other thing is that uh, as he, a former I, pastor, that's what you think about. <laughs> <laughs> who the heck is who's in here? the pew? Who's yeah, <laughs> who's, who's in the pew to this Sunday? So yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> well, he did, did. Anybody call you out and say you are the Holy One of God? No, that that that, that wasn't uh, it, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, there actually, uh, as you were reading that, I I was thinking that uh, uh, there were two main themes: uh, the Sabbath. And then the uh, authority over unclean yeah. spirits. Mm-hmm. But also, as you were reading it, also there's a third kind of theme, very brief in there. But the um, the unclean spirit identifies yeah. Christ. That's right. You know. Yeah. And um, so, so I now understand more why uh, why the, the Didache Bible um, cited. Paragraph four thirty eight uh, as as one of its references for this gospel, uh, because it it again dwells on the fact that uh, Jesus' uh, messianic uh, consecration and so forth uh, reveals his divine mission, as they say. Mm-hmm. For the name Christ implies he who anointed. We read this once before. Yeah, so we did. A real, yeah. real tongue twister. But they cited again with this gospel, he who was anointed, and the very anointing with which he was anointed. The one who anointed is the Father, the one who was anointed is the Son, and he was anointed with the Spirit, who is the actual anointing. Mm -hmm. His eternal messianic consecration was revealed during the time of his earthly life at the moment of his baptism by John when God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power that he might be revealed to Israel as its Messiah. His works, which included power over unclean spirits and words, will manifest him as the Holy One of God. Then the uh, the Didache Bible um, sums it up uh, very tightly, really. Uh, it just says, Teachers of the Mosaic Law would invoke the authority of another well-known teacher, and Jewish exorcists would cast out demons on another's authority. But Christ, however, taught with his own authority and cast out spirits in his own names. A name, um, and then uh, as I pointed out, those are really all the paragraphs in the Catechism that the Didache Bible specifically cites for this particular gospel. But you know, Al, I thought 
uh, that this might be a good time to kind of search the catechism for more insight into the unclean spirits. Sure. You know, yeah. the mystery of evil, how it got there, why it's permitted, and ultimately its destruction. And it w there was quite a lot, I found, you know, dealing with... In fact, there's even more. We only have a certain amount of time, but there's there's even more in the catechism, okay. as you might imagine. But uh, we'll start with paragraph 447 points out that throughout his public life, Jesus demonstrated his divine sovereignty by works of power over nature, illness, demons, death, and sin. Paragraph 539 states, Christ reveals himself as God's servant, totally obedient to the divine will, and in his obedience, Jesus is the devil's conqueror. As the Gospel of Mark says, he binds the strong man to take back his plunder. That's, that's <laughs> quite a line, isn't it? Yeah. Jesus' victory over the tempter in the desert anticipates his passion, the supreme act of obedience of his filial love for the Father. Um, you know, and here I think is a good place to reflect on the origin of evil, which was the direct opposite of Jesus' filial obedience, mm. okay. Adam and Eve's disobedience, which is defined in uh, paragraphs 397 and 398, where it said, man, tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die in his heart, and abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of, and all subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God and lack of trust in his goodness. In that sin, in that sin of uh, the original sin, man preferred himself to God, and by that very act, scorned him. Boy, that's a strong word, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He chose himself over and against God, against the requirements of his creaturely status. He was not, after all, the creator. He was the creature. And therefore, against his own good constituted in a state of holiness. And, you know, when you think about it, they, Adam and Eve were absolutely, I mean, they were more brilliant than the rest of us. They they'd had no sin on their souls when they were created. Mm -hmm. uh, they had the actual company of God. They walked with God. Mm -hmm. So their sin, I mean, for them to sin... As much as, as bad as it is for us to sin, I think it was far greater because we weren't in the, in the realm of greatness that they were. Yeah, they had a perfect environment. Yeah, um, yeah. They, no, no structures of evil uh, that they had to resist. Um, they simply had the presence of the serpent who, um, again, the, the question is, what's he doing there? Um, yeah, right. Why? Right? I mean, but it's yeah. there. However, you interpret it, it, it is he's there as the possibility for disobedience, and that's what was well, available. He represents free will yeah. too. Yeah, of course, exactly. he represents Satan, who who also was with the highest when he was Lucifer, the angel. Mm -hmm. 
was the high, one of the highest of the angels. Yeah. And then he uh, scorned God and uh, so forth. But constituted in a state of holiness, man was destined to be fully divinized by God in glory. But seduced by the devil, he wanted to be like God, but without God, yeah. before God, and not in accordance with God. I think that says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it, again, I, what, what has always bothered me about the original sin is that, that the, lack of, the lack of trust, mm -hmm. uh, they really call into question not only God's authority, but they, they call into question his goodness. Yeah. That, that somehow he doesn't really want what's best for them. Mm -hmm. That they can um, decide for themselves what is best for their fulfillment mm -hmm. uh, to, mm -hmm. to become uh, all that they wanted to be. And in doing so, that's why I, this passage uh, that you referred to in that sin, man preferred himself to God, mm -hmm. and by that very act scorned him. He mm -hmm. chose himself over and against God, mm -hmm. against the requirements of his creaturely status, and therefore against his own good. Mm -hmm. I mean, that... that Stunning, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's just... It, it's, I don't think any of us can really get back to that moment of decision mm -hmm. uh, exactly the way that Adam and Eve would have experienced it because again they were they, they, this is before the fall mm -hmm. before the, the darkness has come upon them it's uh, before, before their eyes were open um, but it, it the catechism says that before they were before the fall they were destined to be fully divinized mm -hmm. by God. Yeah. So, so it isn't as though um, their, their future uh, was somehow to uh, be limited. Uh, they were going to have all that a creature could experience. Mm -hmm. The creature who is divinized has been has fulfilled his nature. Participates in divine yeah, life. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, Seduced by the devil, he wanted to be like God, but without God. That's yeah. that is a strange, yeah, this it, expression. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Before God and not in accordance with God. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let's take a break. We'll come back and continue taking a look at Mark chapter one, verses twenty-one to twenty-eight, and spending some time looking at this whole issue of uh, evil, uh, the unclean spirits, Jesus' authority. Um, Lord of the Sabbath, so he's, he's Lord of that divine institution. We'll be back. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father because he acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christian in College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? 
will send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresta when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There was a big story about this Catholic college saying, oh, we are going to open our doors to anyone who identifies as a woman. So a male student coming in, but if he calls himself a woman, that's fine. This is all about diversity and equality. This is a Catholic women's college. And so, thanks be to God, there was a lot of pushback. And guess what? The school rescinded. How important it is not to give up and to remember that we can and should respectfully, always with love, express our concerns. It doesn't matter. The victory is up to God. But sometimes we do see that success in the victories, as is the case with St. Mary's College, who says now it needs to go back to its roots and get a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Catholic college for women. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Good family discussions don't just happen, they take time. Family talk rituals help families be intentional about making real conversations happen. You need to be intentional if you want to get past exchanges like, what'd you do in school today? Nothing. Believe it or not, when the relationship between parents and kids is healthy, kids naturally want to open up to mom and dad. Kids want to know that their parents care enough to take time to listen and to understand how they're feeling and what they're going through. When parents make time to listen first, kids are more likely to willingly receive what mom and dad have to say. That's why family talk rituals are an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Peggy Stanton, as we look over Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, in preparation for this Sunday's Gospel reading. Uh, It is the uh, passage of Jesus, um, again, uh, casting out the unclean spirit. Um, You know, I was was thinking uh, on the break, Peggy, that 
the the unclean spirit here makes noise. He cries mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, mm -hmm. the Holy One of God. Now, now that's, that's an expression that normally, in the Old Testament anyways, mm -hmm. was used um, to refer to God. I mean, right. God is known. And occasionally it can be used for priests or prophets. Mm -hmm. But normally it's used for God. And so here you have this unclean spirit, yeah. you know, identifying mm -hmm. Jesus as divine. Mm -hmm. uh, he's giving, affirming his deity. Right. And, uh, and I also think it's interesting because Jesus here is on the Sabbath, and he's going to show himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, which mm -hmm. means, again, his divinity. Right. He's Lord of a divine institution. That means mm -hmm. he's divine himself. But... If the, the, so that you've got this noisy, um, <laughs> unclean spirit yeah. raising his voice, disturbing the synagogue service. Yeah. And what does Jesus do? He he. It looks as though the unclean spirit was trying to catch Jesus off guard. Mm -hmm. You know, because he's going to say, "I'm calling you the Holy One of God." You know, give me some credit here. But yeah, Jesus, you, go ahead. Do you think he wants to? Um, I, I thought I was thinking about that too, Al, and I thought, why? What's the motivation of the unclean spirit yeah. identifying him uh, as divine, right. Jesus as divine and God? And I wondered if that he was trying to stop his divine mission by calling him out, so that um, the 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 scribes and Pharisees would want to kill him. Uh, Interesting. I, I hadn't thought of that. That that uh, that makes some sense. Uh, I was thinking along the lines of he he's calling him the Holy One of God because he's trying to get Jesus doesn't want his identity publicized right, at this right. point. Exactly. And, but and, I think because he doesn't, <laughs> he knows that that would set uh, the scribes and Pharisees on the march. And he also, yes, and he also wants to define himself on his own terms. He doesn't want mm. the unclean mm. spirits <laughs> yeah, right. defining who he is. <laughs> but he pushes back, not with noise, though. He pushes mm. back with quiet. Mm -hmm. um, he says quiet, which literally yeah. is be muzzled. Yeah, so, <laughs> right, and he, right. And so he, he says quiet. Come out of him, mm -hmm. and he he doesn't say much more than that. And no. of course, the unclean spirit convulses him. Uh, there's yeah. a loud cry. Uh, Actions and, and speak louder than words. Exactly, <laughs> and, and everybody's amazed. Yeah. Um, this. If he had just said "shut up," and then the and, <laughs> and the and the and the devil had shut up, uh, that wouldn't have impressed people like no, pulling the devil so. right out of yeah. this man. I mean, earlier in the chapter, we had John the Baptist who was predicting that a mightier one was to come. So, right, right. people are seeing this right, um, you know, right before their eyes. Uh, mm -hmm. The man. I wish we again. You always wish there was more. They. The, the text would tell us more. I, I would love to know what this man's life was like now that the unclean spirit had been uh, cast out of him. Yeah, yeah. What, yes. what was 
what was his life like mm, mm -hmm. subsequent to that right, event? Right, right. There's a whole chapter right there. But yeah. <laughs> we'll, yeah. We'll, we, you'll have to remember that question when you get on the other <laughs> side, Al. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, then paragraph 635 in the Catechism says that Jesus, the author of life, by dying, destroyed him who has the power of death, or, and this is my own phrase, and I hope I'm not committing heresy, but, or dare we say the author of death? Can we call the devil that? I mean, certainly, God is not the author of death. I mean, God is the author of life. Yeah. Yeah, death is the deprivation of life. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting phrase. I don't know. Yeah, it's one of those. Call in the theologians. Yeah, you think. Um, I mean, he's called the father of lies, right? So, in that sense, he's given a title of something which is a deprivation. A lie is a deprivation of the truth, yeah. and so death is the deprivation of life. So, is he the father of death? Is he the author of lies? Or, you know, switch it around and see the father of, of lies. Well, he said the death. catechism does say destroyed him who has the power of death. Yep, yep, that's that, right. That, but that being the power and author are two different things, really. Yeah. Uh, then paragraph 636 explains what is meant by the expression in the, in the Apostles' Creed that often uh, puzzles people. He descended into hell. This means, the Catechism says, that Christ really did die and through his death for us conquered death and the devil, or rescued us, I say, as Father John Ricardo yeah. likes to build the case. Sure, sure. But here's a, um, uh, uh, the, the Catechism quotes a very, really, I thought, striking passage I had never seen before. Uh, it's very rich imagery. And it's from uh, what is titled uh, The Ancient Homily for Holy Saturday. And I thought, Al, it, it would really suit you to read it if, you, if you'd like. If yeah. not, I'll, I'll do it. Um, yes, okay, this is... Uh, Today... Yeah, let me go to it. I, I've got it here in front of me. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, this is The Ancient Homily for Holy Saturday. Mm -hmm. Today, a great silence reigns on earth... A great silence and a great stillness. A great silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. He has gone to search for Adam, our first father, as for a lost sheep, greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death. He's gone to free from sorrow Adam in his bonds and Eve captive with him. He who is both their God and the son of Eve, I am your God who for your sake have become your son. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. I've never seen this passage no, before. No, I had never seen it. Isn't that something? Uh, yeah. What it's, imagery it's comes intriguing. to mind? Yes. No? This idea of searching for Adam mm -hmm. as for a lost sheep. Mm -hmm. uh, Christ desiring to visit those who live in darkness and mm -hmm. in the shadow of death. Uh, he goes to free them of their sorrow. Uh, victory. Uh, this is the holy, the victory of Holy Saturday. Um, 
both their God and the son of Eve. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's again, the son of Eve for you. His divinity and his humanity are both yeah. affirmed there. Um, yeah. I, I am your God who for your sake have mm-hmm. become your son. <laughs> oh, I, 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 you just never have thought of it that yeah. way. It's, it, it's, uh, it's really uh, quite a passage and uh, I, I think quite beautiful, really. It is, uh, and I'd like to. I'd like to know more about it. There's been there's been a lot of theological speculation on this whole question uh, of the descent into hell and the mm-hmm. theology of Holy Saturday. Uh, I'm not equipped to to really go into it very much, um, but I uh, I do think that um, wherever you come down in the various debates here, you you've got to always end up affirming Christ's victory mm-hmm. uh, over death mm-hmm. you know so uh, the line um, God has fallen asleep in the flesh in other words in fact I heard um, a, a priest on Ave Maria radio or, uh, earlier today uh, discussing almost the same thing uh, could could God have actually died he said in in his flesh in his humanity he could but the the divine godhead of course never died and this makes that point says um in when it says god has fallen asleep in the flesh mm-hmm. it's not you know uh the trinity has not uh the divinity and the Trinity has not, you know, died. Yeah. But Jesus, in his humanity, died, but he is also God. So at that point, you can say God has fallen asleep in yeah. the flesh. It, this gets, so this brings us to, again, one of the seven last sayings of Jesus that uh, Franz Joseph Haydn put to music beautifully. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, uh, um, Jesus' uh, s- statement that uh, he's been abandoned by mm. God. Mm. That somehow, my God, my God, why have you forsaken mm. me? Mm-hmm. Which is the first, the first sentence of Psalm uh, 22, which but, in yeah, fact read is, in context. Yeah, it, not... and it's a triumphal psalm. Right. So, so it starts off though with this expression mm. of the divine dereliction. God's abandonment right. of his, in this case, of his son. So whatever, it seems to me, this is one of those areas you have to tread carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to in some way account for Jesus um, in his humanity being aware that the burden of sin uh, has brought death uh, to the human race, and he's recapitulating the history of the human race. So th- he has to enter uh, that death in order to redeem the rest. Mm. He has to somehow right. absorb the consequence, the full consequence right. of sin. And so there are many theologians who, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's, they see that as a place where Jesus didn't become a sinner, but he became sin for our sake. Mm. And as such, uh, his, God's eyes are too pure 
to behold iniquity. So he had, in some way, he had the experience of being abandoned. Abandoned. Yeah. And well, like he had to have the experience of all of the trials of humanity. I mean, as as purely God with no human flesh, so to speak, he could not experience life as we do. He could not really be sympathetic to what we go through. He had to, uh, in his human flesh, experience, I think, everything except sin. Yeah, but he, he, this is, he was tempted in all ways such as we are, yet right. without sin. Right, and so you it makes you wonder. Okay, um, in what way is his human capacity to avoid sin right. propped up by his divinity? And doesn't that give him an advantage that we don't have? Yeah, so a, those are those <laughs> yeah. are the things that uh, theologians wrestle with when you get when you begin to deal with this the relationship. When you get to the hypostatic union yeah. and the relationship yeah. between the divine and the human, uh, Jesus remains a divine person right. uh, who took on human nature. So you can't somehow snip his divinity off uh, and make him... Can't, can't, but uh, what's the line in Scripture? He stripped himself... Yes, he em emptied himself. Emptied himself. That's right. In Philippians yeah. chapter 2. Yeah. This is the famous passage where uh, Jesus sets aside, appears to set aside his divine prerogatives mm -hmm. in order to, again, uh, accept status. Uh, Could he not be unconscious to it? In other words, it's there. His divinity is there, but he deliberately made himself unconscious to it. Does that make any sense? I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm saying I, this is, again, one of those yeah. areas where uh, I generally avoid uh, getting involved in. <laughs> but here we are, involved. <laughs> yeah. All right, Peggy, thanks. Thank you, Al. <laughs> the Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. In the fourth rule of the 14 rules for the discernment of spirits, St. Ignatius of Loyola describes spiritual desolation Detailing an aspect of spiritual desolation, he writes, And as if separated from one's Creator and Lord. Father Timothy Gallagher explains this aspect. Ignatius is highlighting a fundamental characteristic of spiritual desolation. While it endures, any felt consciousness of God's loving presence is weakened or absent, and such persons feel as if they were separated from God. God is with us, despite the lack of feeling that He is with us. God is with us when we feel isolated, alone, and as if no one cares. Instead of continuing to allow the spiritual desolation to isolate us, the invitation is to open our hearts to communion with God's heart. What will be your prayer of communion with God today? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's the definition of frustration? Frustration is the difference between the way it is and the way you want it to be. It's hard to change the way it is. The way it is sometimes is other people, life, circumstances. The way you want it to be is in your power to change. You can close the gap between 
reality and what you want. The smaller that gap, the less your frustration. It is always easier to change oneself than to change reality. Frustration isn't always what happens out there. It is how we look at what happens out there. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Let me point you to the catechism here. How is the Son of God man? This is a again a, a place for theological um, expression. And for, beginning at paragraph four seventy, uh, it begins this way: Because human nature was assumed, not absorbed, in the mysterious union of the incarnation. The Church was led over the centuries to confess the full reality of Christ's human soul with its operations of intellect and will and of his human body. Now, that's how it begins. It goes on to talk about the relationship between Christ's soul and his human knowledge, his will. So, again, pick it up in paragraph 470 in the Catechism. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanking you for joining me this hour. Uh, I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and that is I'm just going to carry over a little bit of the conversation I had with Peggy Stanton last hour regarding... uh, Christ's the relationship between the divine and human in Christ. The reason I'm taking a, an extra moment on this is because over the last generation, there's actually been a lot of uh, heretical thinking, or quasi-heretical thinking anyways, over the question of Christ's human knowledge. And again, I would refer you to the catechism on this, which kind of sets out the, the, the right parameters doesn't answer all the questions, but it, it sets the parameters. Um, so it, it said, for instance, that the, the human soul that the Son of God assumed is endowed with a true human knowledge, and as such, this knowledge could not in itself be unlimited. Okay, now this is interesting, because it's human knowledge, and human knowledge is not unlimited, right? It's limited by its creaturely status. Um, and in fact, Christ's human soul and his knowledge was exercised in the historical conditions of his existence in space and time. And this is why the Son of God could, when he became man, quote, increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Again, quoting from the uh, Gospel of Luke. Uh, and Jesus would even have to inquire for himself about what one in the human condition can learn only from experience. So, again, in his humanity, he had limited human knowledge. And the Catechism goes to Philippians chapter 2 that we referred to. This corresponded to the reality of his voluntarily emptying him of himself, taking the form of a slave. Um, 
At the same time, though, this truly human knowledge of God's Son expressed the divine life of his person. The human nature of God's Son, not by itself, but by its union with the Word, knew and showed forth in itself everything that pertains to God. Such is first of all the case with the intimate and immediate knowledge that the Son of God made man has of his Father. The Son, in his human knowledge, also showed the divine penetration he had into the secret thoughts of human hearts. By its union to the divine wisdom in the person of the Word incarnate, Christ enjoyed in his human knowledge the fullness of understanding of the eternal plans he had come to reveal. Key phrase, the eternal plans he had come to reveal. What he admitted to not knowing in this area he elsewhere declared himself not sent to reveal. So, again, get on over to the Catechism, beginning at paragraph 470, to enter into some of these uh, questions regarding the relationship between Christ, divine, and human nature. This hour, though, we're spending with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We're going to be taking a look at a, a host of interesting stories around the world, Pope Francis thanking Vatican journalists for reporting on scandals in the Church. Uh, the Pope has also spoken about uh, artificial intelligence and its relationship to the human mind. And then uh, we also have the mourning, uh, the death of a real uh, of apostle uh, of Catholic media. So stay with me, but first, the headlines. Thanks, Alan. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Thursday, January 25th, it's the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. Today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. Barring a last-minute reprieve, the nation's first execution by nitrogen hypoxia will go on as scheduled today. An attorney for Kenneth Smith claimed in a filing that it violated the Constitution's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Experts have repeatedly warned that nitrogen toxicity may cause the condemned person to suffer unnecessarily, but the U.S. Supreme Court on Wednesday declined to stop the execution. Smith has been sentenced to death for a 1988 murder of a pastor's wife and lived through a botched 2022 execution attempt. President Biden is announcing billions of dollars in new infrastructure projects across the country. $5 billion investment led by the Department of Transportation for 37 major projects across America, including bridges, highways, ports, airports. While speaking in Superior, Wisconsin, Biden claimed economic growth has been stronger than under Trump. Ohio lawmakers have voted overwhelmingly to prohibit doctors from facilitating sex changes for children in a successful override of Governor Mike DeWine's veto of the legislation. The bill prohibits all gender reassignment surgery performed on minors and the prescription of puberty-blocking drugs and hormone treatments designed to facilitate a gender transition for minors. DeWine, the state's Republican governor, broke from his party in December when he vetoed the bill. The Republican-controlled House voted in early January to override the veto, and the Senate followed suit yesterday. The bill goes into effect in 90 days. And the defense is resting in former President Trump's New York defamation damages trial. Trump returning to the courtroom today and briefly testified in his defense. Last year, jurors found Trump liable for sexually abusing and defaming writer E. Jean Carroll decades ago. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. 
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and join me right now, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EW10 News. He's authored or co-authored more than 50 books, including the first English-language biography of Pope Francis. Uh, you can also see his Encyclopedia of Catholic History, and you can follow him on Twitter at Matt Bunsen. That's Matt with two Ts. And uh, Okay. Matthew, good to have you back. Thanks. Always a privilege to be with you. So let's let's go to Pope Francis' uh, encouragement of, uh, well, he thanked the Vatican Press Corps uh, on Monday. Tell me about that. Well, this has uh, become an interesting exchange. He's had a number of uh, exchanges with uh, the media. I can think, for example, uh, last year during June where he was talking about them. And he seems very keen on trying to get several key ideas across, and one of them is ethics in journalism. Uh, another, of course, is uh, really pushing for transparency. Uh, but then he had some interesting comments that were noted, uh, certainly in social media, uh, about uh, thanking them uh, for two things. One is reporting on the scandals in the Church, uh, and doing so, though, he said with delicacy. But then it, it raised a few eyebrows when he made the, the comment of journalists at times uh, working in what he described as, quote, abashed silence. Uh, hmm. And he said, thank you for this attitude. And it, it has raised a lot of questions exactly what he meant by that. Yeah, right. But I think the biggest takeaway from this, because it's one of those classic Pope Francis phrases, is I think this idea of thanking Catholic journalists, and this is like 150 journalists who are permanently accredited, so to speak, to the Holy See. In other words, this is the Roman media for the Catholic press, and encouraging them to cover the Vatican uh, on what he called the solid rock of responsibility for the truth, not the fragile sands of gossip and ideological interpretations. Mm -hmm. And then he talked about uh, that, uh, the delicacy that they bring to the speaking of scandals in the Church. And it, he said similar things before, but this was so striking in the length to which he went, but also the uh, real effort that he made to bring them into the Apostolic Palace to hold this meeting. Hmm. So, so obviously, he's, this is something he's given thought to. I mean, this, he seems to be taking this quite seriously. Yeah, yeah, and and he couched it uh, within what is the the, the and the feast day of Saint Francis de Sales yeah. on January twenty fourth, so just yesterday. Yep, uh, patron, patron saint, saint of journalists. Journalist. Yeah, exactly. I always uh, I love Francis de Sales, uh, not just because he can be said to be really one of the great patron saints of journalists uh, who used broadsheets, who used post it notes, uh, who used placards who used word of mouth to convert tens of thousands yeah. of Calvinists in yep. the area around Geneva right. uh, before his death in 1622. But also, of course, tying that, as he did, uh, to decades and decades, several hundred years before the Second Vatican Council and the universal call to holiness. Yes. What did Francis do? He reminded us all that we are also all called to holiness. Yeah. Uh, and that it is not simply something that is limited to the monasteries or convents or ex the exclusive domain of, of 
priests and nuns and monks. Yeah. I, I was just reading uh, St. Francis de Sales' uh, comments uh, to a woman who was in distress because she wanted to marry, but she had a. Uh, she was also t- attending to her father, who was quite ill, and she had a friend who was insisting that she shouldn't uh, be go on be thinking of marriage. She should, you know, finish uh, serving her father, and then when she was done, she should go into uh, uh, take religious vows. That somehow, in saying that um, this was the way to holiness, uh, the vow of celibacy, and so she, this woman, is distressed because her friend's giving her what she fears is bad advice. She writes the Pope, uh, she writes the Saint Francis de Sales, who says, "Look, um, marriage is a place of perpetual mortification." <laughs> and is and is well equipped to to be a place for you to be holy. Um, mm-hmm. And he says, I'm trying to remember the phrase now. The the bitter you can you can take the bitter chew the bitter juice of perpetual mortification and turn it into the honey of holiness. <laughs> yes. That's what marriage does. So. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, I, I'm living proof that my wife is obviously going to become is a saint. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, he's but, one but, of my right. favorites, too. Yeah. yeah. Right. And now, I, I, with the doff of the cap to Maximilian Colby, I think, who, for in, in the modern era, in my mind, has to be called something of a, a patron saint of the Catholic press as well. Sure. Because... Uh, also in anticipation of the Second Vatican Council, in particular into Marifica, with his use of all the means of social communication that were at his disposal. He used radio, he used newspaper, he used magazines, he used books. I mean, he, he used every means at the time. I think it's safe to say that Francis of Sales would have, too. Yeah. Um, both of them suffered immensely. Colby, of course, uh, the red martyrdom. Francis de Sales uh, stood down assassins. Uh, he was marching his way and walking his way through the, the Chamblay region of, of what is now Switzerland and into Italy, almost eaten by wolves at one point during the winter, mm. um, chased up the tree, had to spend the night. He lashed himself to one of the branches uh, to stay alive and was discovered half frozen to death the following morning by some farmers who took him back and warmed him up. But those are the sacrifices that he was willing to make. And I think that's something, too, that is a great credit to many journalists. We love to pick on journalists, speaking as one, uh, rightly so, I think, in many circumstances. But Francis, in his conversation with the accredited journalist, talked about that it is a vocation. It's somewhat like that of a doctor who chooses to love humanity by curing illnesses. In a certain sense, he said, the journalist does likewise, choosing to touch personally the wounds of society and the world, and to make that better known. And I think that's, too, where the work of journalists over the decades where the sex abuse scandal has been so horribly present, they have done uh, an, an important work uh, for the church. Now, we just wish that secular media would also turn its attention to the same types of uh, crises of sexual abuse in secular institutions that they've devoted to the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, Pope Francis also addressing artificial intelligence, uh, yes. 
Uh, this is uh, one of those stories, too, that uh, I found especially interesting because this is uh, increasingly for any of us uh, in media. We recognize that AI is everywhere now and that the use of AI chat GPT is transforming not just how we do journalism and how we report and how we write, but in some cases, there's a real risk of what we can cover and are we doing it ethically? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in a, in a new era for this, and I think that's one of the things that Pope Francis uh, was calling when he was giving his message for the World Day of Peace uh, and then reiterated this just a few days ago, uh, that he wants an international treaty to ensure artificial intelligence is developed but then used ethically. And the risk, as he puts it, of technology might be lacking humanity, hmm. and with it then compassion, morality, forgiveness, mercy, all the things that a human ideally would bring, but that at this point we see no indication of emerging in any way with AI-generated content. And then we've got attribution issues. But what was interesting is that Francis himself was something of a victim of the power of AI, because there was an AI-generated image of him that came out, I think it was last April, of a luxurious, uh, elegant, white sort of puffer jacket. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that image. Uh, That began circulating. It went absolutely viral all over the world. If you just put, like, Pope Francis in parka or Pope Francis in puffer jacket, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about completely AI-generated, but entirely plausible, in exactly the same way that there were AI images of Pope Francis breakdancing in a host of bizarre situations, nothing obscene or anything, but just inappropriate. Sure. And it was, of course, an absolute deep fake that went everywhere. And there were some people who actually thought, yeah, maybe this is... uh, this is actually Pope Francis in a puffer jacket. So, as, as the Pope Hold, uh, holding uh, a water bottle, holding a water bottle, <laughs> as the Pope of mortification, yeah, I think a, a very luxurious puffer jacket is not exactly his speed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's yeah. We are still. It's, it's going to be a long time before we, uh, if we ever uh, are able to entirely. Uh, come up with an ethics of artificial intelligence. Um, it, it, uh, ChatGBT has a way of writing things for you. Feed it certain types yeah. of questions, and you can get yourselves uh, essays. Uh, I've, done, I've used it um, to play, play around with theological problems. And, you know, it doesn't do bad the second, third, or fourth exchange. Then it, then it loses track. <laughs> exactly. so. Yes, it does. 60 Seconds with Father Mitch Pacwa. Take a look at our website, EWTN.com, and the old programs. I've so far gone through the uh, encyclicals on Jesus, which is Redemptor Hominis, on God the Father, Divas and Misericordia, and on the Holy Spirit, Dominum et Vivificantem, also the one on the Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, and the one on Redemptoris Mater, Mother of the Redeemer. So I've gone through five of those, and you can get those off of our website. 
Uh, again, the website is www.ewtn.com. And then when you go to libraries, what you can do is go to the audio library, and the audio library will have uh, the uh, old programs. You can, they're all there, and you can just access them that way. May God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. How would you define the word beatitude? Webster's Dictionary defines beatitude as a state of utmost bliss and a declaration made in the Sermon on the Mount. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that the Beatitudes are, in effect, a portrait of the man who declared them, Jesus Christ, depicting his countenance and portraying his charity. The Beatitudes also describe the attitudes and actions that should portray and depict his followers, true Christians. The Beatitudes are paradoxical in their promises. None seems more paradoxical than number eight, which proclaims, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. The paradox is that God is present even amidst trials and tribulations. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. The devil will always do his best to tempt you into sin until you get to that place where you love sin. That's what he wants. He wants you down there with him. And not because he loves you, he hates you. When you do what the enemy tempts you to do, he does it out of pure hatred. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresto. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We're doing our weekly look at news stories around the Catholic world. And uh, 
EWTN is mourning the unexpected death of Father Elias Leeds. He's the founder of EWTN Low Countries, who I did not know personally. Um, were you, did you know him, Matthew? Yes, I did. Uh, over the last few years, uh, I had uh, the great privilege of uh, getting to know him and to spend some time with him on a couple of occasions, um, including uh, during World Youth Day uh, last August uh, in Lisbon, Portugal, where um, he was there as part of uh, EWTN Low Countries' uh, coverage of uh, the, the whole of the World Youth Day. And just to spend time with him, uh, you appreciated immediately two aspects, and this has been picked up by quite a few people. He was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, but he was also a joyful, faithful priest. Yeah. And to be able to spend time with someone who's both uh, is uh, always a, a privilege, uh, but it's also very uh, profound. Uh, and looking back on it, I'm, I'm so very grateful, just the brief amount of time that I was able to spend with him and the reaction uh, to his uh, sudden passing uh, among those who worked with him on a much more regular basis. So this was uh, unexpected. Tells you something. Yes, it was. Okay. Uh, I think he was 65. Okay. Uh, and uh, it, it came as a real shock to all of us. It, uh, Michael Warsaw, our CEO and board chair for uh, EWTN, uh, described him as an amazing man, fully dedicated to bringing the mission of EWTN to the Low Countries, especially his home country of Holland. But he, he talks about the. Uh, just how much he's going to be greatly missed, and uh, various other immense commendations have come in from others who worked with them. I think especially Martin Rottweiler, who's the managing director of EWTN Germany, who called him an incredibly impressive figure, hmm. and and that he really was. But he was also something of a pioneer. I mean, he he worked uh, in a variety of places in Europe, uh, and he was faithful, but he. We were just talking about the utilization of all the means of social communications, and in that sense, he really did a tremendous service uh, to helping the faith to grow and, and in some ways, to be sustained in the low countries. Uh, as you know, Al, this has been a, a very difficult number of decades yeah. uh, for faithful Catholics uh, in places like the Netherlands and, and Belgium, you know, under the Benelux countries. Yeah. This and, is Belgium, uh, Netherlands, Luxembourg. That's generally yeah. what we call the low countries. Yeah, uh, and uh, for him to really help establish the presence of EWTN there. Yeah. And yeah. as we have seen, I think there is a, a slow turnaround uh, of uh, real zeal uh, in the faith, especially in, in a place like the Netherlands. And we just saw the, the Dutch bishops coming out in a very clear, faithful, but uh, forceful uh, statement about fiducia supplicants of what's possible and what isn't. And uh, I think there are some who would, would have questioned just a few decades ago whether that would have been even possible as a statement. Yeah, and uh, Bishop... Of the, uh, of the country of the Dutch Catechism. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, the Archbishop of Utrecht who has called for a, an encyclical uh, on gender uh, ideology. Uh, he That's thinks right. this yeah. is something Pope Francis should get right on top of. So, again. Yeah, it's uh, Cardinal Willem Eich, I think That's you're right. talking about. That is right. That's uh, right. Who was, yeah, one of the primary architects, so to speak, of uh, this letter that came out from the Dutch bishops. So that's, in some ways, the, the context of the background of the work of Father Elias. Oh. And 
Uh, we owe him an immense debt uh, hmm. as EWTN continues to grow in Europe, but also just keeping the fires of faith alive and really helping to bring souls to Christ at a time when uh, Europe, as you know, Western Europe in particular, is increasingly secularized, and, and, and it is in many ways that dictatorship of relativism that, that Father Elias and I even talked about in Lisbon. Hmm. Uh, cause of death, how do we know? Uh, I'm not clear about that. Okay. Okay. Um, well, talking about uh, the death of a uh, hero of the faith, uh, we also have a story dealing with death uh, in Alabama where we've got the use of a untested uh, new form of execution, um, this nitrogen hypoxia uh, being used. Yeah. And uh, it's getting some resistance. The Catholic groups are expressing concern about it. Uh, what can you tell me about it? Yeah, they are. Uh, this is uh, something of a novelty, as we have seen. Um, and uh, as you were talking about, this is something certainly that uh, Pope Francis uh, has been uh, very determined about. Uh, this has uh, actually never before been used. Uh, and the question has been whether or not the Supreme Court would uh, block uh, this. What essentially what you're talking about is that the use of nitrogen gas, uh, which has uh, not been used as an execution execution method by any state, uh, and critics are, are really unhappy about this and, and opponents of uh, the, the death penalty, uh, it, in this case, it involves a 58-year-old convicted killer of the name of Kenneth Eugene Smith, mm -hmm. uh, who was initially supposed to receive a lethal injection uh, in 2022, but the actual execution was called off at the very last minute because essentially authorities couldn't connect an IV line, which struck many people as odd. Yeah. Uh, but he is now scheduled again for execution in Alabama, which is, is one of the more active states uh, in the country uh, with the use of the execution uh, of actual the death penalty. And the way this would work is to put a respirator over him, over his face, and then pump in pure nitrogen gas. Uh, it's really something unusual, uh, in, in part because my understanding from this is that he will not be rendered unconscious uh, before that. Rather, the, the nitrogen gas will cause unconsciousness within seconds and then death, of course, within minutes. But um, the argument has been that this is a very painless and humane method of execution, but there are quite a few people who are opposed to this. Uh, and of course, uh, the U.S. bishops and Pope Francis, uh, certainly in keeping with uh, the, the Church's position on the death penalty, have been very much opposed to the application of it. Yeah, I, I read uh, in the Register that the American Veterinary Medical Association recommends giving large animals a sedative when they're being euthanized in this uh, manner, um, and yet there is no sedation of human beings prior to execution here. Uh, I don't know what to say about that. I've never really thought about <laughs> euthanizing large animals, uh, but it just makes... If, if you're going to give a sedative to large animals before you euthanize them in this manner, you'd think it might make might be a good provision for, for the sedation of human beings prior to execution. Yes, yeah, I, I think uh, some thought might want to be put to this. 
and, and this is, uh, of course, as, as you and I have talked many times over the years, this is uh, something that Pope Francis has weighed in on. Yeah. Uh, building on the previous uh, emphasis that has been placed uh, by Pope John Paul II and, and Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, of course, Pope Francis very famously made some changes to the, the language of the Catechism. That's right. That's significantly, right. we always have to remember that uh, he did not, uh, in part because he can't, uh, go so far as to call the death penalty an intrinsic evil. Right. It still falls within the prudential judgments. But uh, again, building on really, and on, I think I always go back to John Paul II's uh, use of it and Benedict's use of it, uh, talking about it, that it, it should be rendered so rare as to never be used. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this also comes on. Uh, the, the heels of uh, the decision back in just yesterday, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, announcing that it would actually take a review of an Oklahoma case of a man on death row who potentially might have been wrongfully convicted. And this is um, a, a case that has been really encouraged by Archbishop Paul Coakley, mm-hmm. uh, who's the Archbishop of Oklahoma City. Uh, in this case, uh, the, the prisoner, uh, Richard Glossop, was convicted all the way back in 1998 uh, for ordering a handyman uh, at, a, at a motel he managed to perpetrate a murder against the motel's owner. Uh, he was convicted, however, entirely on the handyman's testimony, but there are a lot of questions now as uh, the independent investigations have uncovered a variety of problems with the trial, including police potential, at least accusations of uh, police misconduct. So the the question now is, will the Supreme Court weigh in? And uh, this, I think, too, is where uh, the USCCB uh, and individual bishops can really play an important role uh, in helping to draw attention uh, to some of these cases, but also to the Church's position on a variety of, of areas in Catholic social teaching. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it's very important. Uh, this this i think what has troubled people over the last 20 years uh more and more stories of those who have been wrongly convicted uh and ending up on death row and um yeah i, I yeah and, and one of the things that the john paul ii was uh, quite concerned about and, and here we are seeing this playing out uh, aggressively in this new century is the use of corporal punishment, the use of torture, and then the use of uh, execution or the death penalty uh, in jurisdictions that do not have any serious efforts uh, or serious institutional life uh, for appropriate review and fair trial right. and others. Right. And uh, that's something that John Paul II lived with uh, in his youth and then under the Soviets, Yep. Uh, that, that the use of execution... Uh, and the complete absence of basic human and civil rights uh, leading up to then the use of executions and the death penalty uh, were things that he was very keenly aware of. Uh, and so I think that, in many ways, too, colored uh, his approach to the question of uh, the death penalty, uh, that his view was much broader than what even we would consider uh, to be an important issue in the United States. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, we often tend we we often tend to think that uh, the church always has the United States in mind <laughs> when it uh, you know is writing the catechism or or you know coming up with emphases for World Communications Day. And we need to remember that um, 
you know, the church is dealing with the entire globe and Catholic presence around the world, not just those right. of us. It's a reminder that it's not always about us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Matthew, hold it there. We'll continue conversation on the other side. Bishops, uh, by the way, are praising uh, this bipartisan deal on enhanced child tax credits. We'll talk about that. Um, also, there's been an ecumenical catechism for public schools in the Holy Land. Uh, that's interesting. Sign of Christian unity. And there's much more. I'm Al Creston. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our healthcare and in our nation. But not all healthcare options are equally pro-life and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic healthcare ministry providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their healthcare choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Hello and welcome to this segment of The Crux of the Matter. I'm Father Wade Menezes of the Fathers of Mercy. Sundays and Holy Days require of the Catholic Christian obligatory Mass attendance. Why is this? Precisely because we love God, not because we fear Him. The Second Vatican Council teaches that the sacred liturgy is above all things the worship of the Divine Majesty. God calls us to Himself and we want to respond to that call with sacred worship. Apart from illness, for example, the Church teaches that the faithful are obliged to participate in the celebration of the sacred liturgy on all Sundays and holy days of obligation. This is a grave obligation, in fact, and to willfully neglect it can cause one to commit mortal sin. In fact, every Sunday is a holy day of obligation. The Code of Canon Law states clearly that Sunday, on which by apostolic tradition the Paschal Mystery is celebrated, is to be observed in the Universal Church as the primary Holy Day of Obligation. Other examples of Holy Days of Obligation, apart from Sunday itself, include the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, on January 1st, the Assumption of Mary on August 15th, and the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin on December 8th. 
While there are other holy days of obligation established throughout the world, such as the Ascension of Our Lord and the Solemnity of Corpus Christi, national bishops' conferences can dispense the faithful from the obligation for a just reason and even transfer a holy day to be observed on a Sunday. As faithful sons and daughters of the church then, friends, let us remember too that faithfully attending Mass on Sundays and holy days of obligation brings with it not only an observance of the third commandment, but also a faithful adherence to a formal precept of the church as well. This is the crux of the matter. God bless you and thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, as we take a look at Catholic news from around the world. Back here in the United States, the leader of the U.S. Bishops' Domestic Justice Committee uh, has praised a new congressional plan for an enhanced enhanced child tax credit uh, for taxpayers, calling it exactly the sort of policy on which lawmakers should be focused. What can you tell me about this uh, enhanced child tax credit proposal? Yeah, uh, I think this is uh, one of those uh, moments where, uh, to our great surprise, that there is actual bipartisan cooperation and agreement. Yeah, uh, that seems to be in remarkably short supply of late. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, what the plan is proposing is that parents are able to establish a two thousand dollar tax credit per child under the age of seventeen. And now, what it does is it reduces taxes essentially dollar for dollar, but only sixteen hundred of that is refundable. Uh, it's also available to single filers, for example, who make less than 200000 and joint followers, filers uh, under around, what, I think it's 400000 mm-hmm. But uh, there are some a few changes that are notable that people can still receive a $2,000 tax credit, but the cap adjusts annually for inflation. And that would mean basically $1,800 in 2024, $1,900 in 2025, etc. And... One of the things that uh, is being praised in this is that uh, it is hoped that this would actually be successful in taking some serious steps in in raising children out of poverty. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the USCCB, under the auspices of Archbishop Boris Gudziak, the Ukrainian Archeparchy of Philadelphia, is chairman of the United U.S. Conference's uh, Committee on Domestic Justice and Human Development, Mm that it really is targeted successfully to the well-being of, of struggling families uh, who are trying to work their way out of poverty. Very good. Uh, there's a story uh, in the register about a Latin mass being held in the Capitol on the anniversary of the FBI memo that targeted traditional Catholics. What can you tell me about it? Yeah, that's uh, a, a story that I found especially interesting because uh, it was held in the U.S. Capitol, which uh, is I, well, probably I, I, I would have to go out on a limb and say that I couldn't tell you the last time when that's actually happened, if it ever has. Yeah, uh, it, it raises two interesting aspects, though. The, the first is uh, bringing attention, as it does, uh, to the FBI now infamous FBI memo, and and it could not have happened at the Capitol without the full support of House Speaker Mike Johnson and other Republican members of the House who are in control of the House of Representatives. 
But it also immediately raised the question about whether or not this was licit. We, there's no question I should think that it's valid, but the question is, is it allowed under the very technical rules of traditiones custodes and the limitations of Latin masses? What was interesting is that uh, certainly some in the progressive Catholic media were much more upset uh, with the idea of a Latin mass being held uh, in the capital uh, than they were probably about the original FBI memo itself that helped spark this. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, wow. I think that's also one of the, the, the secular media questions, too. Uh, but this is a, a mass that was intended really to bring attention to the fact that here we are one year on from uh, this memo. Mm-hmm. And it was a reminder that uh, Catholics... Uh, including those who celebrate and, and love the traditional Latin Mass, are fully American, because uh, I, we all have to remember that the FBI was specifically interested or targeting uh, people who are considered rad-trads, to, yeah. sorry to use the, the what many consider to be a very derogatory term, but those who are very traditional Catholics, that somehow risks to become wild-eyed domestic terror threats. Yeah, yeah. And so here's this mass that's taking place, I think, trying to demonstrate to them that, uh, no, I, people who go to traditional Latin mass are exactly the opposite. Yeah. I, and this is, it's very strange because the Catholics used to have, a, there was a disproportionate Catholic presence years ago uh, at the FBI. And uh, that I wonder if that has changed uh, over the last uh, 30, 40 years. Um, yeah, it's difficult now. I, I, I have not seen any statistics as to the membership uh, among the FBI. I know that there has obviously been a, a great push in, in recent years uh, toward the terms, the, the phrase that you hear everywhere now is DEI, yeah, diversity, yeah. equity, and inclusion. And, and so there has been, in many ways, a transformational aspect uh, to hiring and promotions and other things, not just in Ivy League universities, but in many of the federal institutions. Yeah, uh, and I know one of the concerns has been uh, that the specific targeting uh, that I think has been thoroughly well documented by congressional hearings uh, really was the result of a, a kind of sea change ideologically. At least that's the contention of of many critics mm-hmm. of this leaked FBI memo uh, that the FBI itself is is now beholden to certain ideological causes. Again, yeah. that's the, the the criticism that's being waged yeah. here. Yeah. No, I remember I interviewed um, the late uh, Bill Romer, who was uh, has a host of books about his experience in the FBI. Uh, he's the one that credited with, um, you know, quote, breaking up the Chicago mob. And Bill was a graduate of Notre Dame, uh, was a boxing uh, star there, uh, and I can remember him telling me, and this goes back now to 19, early, late 80s, early 90s, I remember him talking about uh, how Catholic-friendly the FBI was during his career. But again, mm-hmm. that's a long time ago, so. Um, right. What what did Cardinal Gregory say about this mess? Well, the, uh, uh, the, the question was put to, I believe, to uh, the archdiocese, because it certainly uh, was not uh, condoned or, or 
allowed, so to speak, by the, the archdiocese. Mm. And my understanding is that uh, the, the archdiocese itself issued a statement that it was neither asked nor did it give permission uh, for the, the mass, the Latin mass, to be celebrated inside the capital. And uh, in part because uh, they would have to ask for permission to hold the traditional Latin Mass outside of the three designated churches within the Archdiocese of Washington, where the Mass is regularly celebrated, again, in keeping with uh, Cardinal Gregory's uh, implementation of Traditionis Custodes. Now, technically, the organization that organized this, I believe it's the Arlington Latin Mass Society, uh, is based in the Diocese of Arlington, uh, but the Diocese of Arlington uh, stressed that it has no formal relationship uh, between the diocese and this society, okay. and uh, that uh, the, the diocese, as a result of that, does not have any position on it and would not have the authority uh, to provide approval or refusal uh, for the Mass. So I think the best way to say it is that this is a Mass that uh, many people, including the Speaker of the House, felt that uh, they needed to celebrate to make a key point yeah. uh, relating to this first anniversary of the FBI memo, and, and I think that's where it stands. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, the Mass, uh, Kentucky, uh, we have uh, Covington Bishop John Iffert uh, apparently requesting the resignation of two priests who were, uh, in some way, had derided the Novus Ordo Mass as, well, irrelevant, I guess. <laughs> right. Not, not sure. I, yeah. Not uh, sure how that. I'm not sure how a priest gets to that point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, the uh, you're, you're absolutely right. In this, uh, we were talking earlier in the hour about the flurries and, and uproars on social media. I think this would be a. a a textbook definition of an uproar okay. uh, that, that occurred on social media, as uh, it frequently does now, especially on, uh, I can never get used to saying it, it's, it's not Twitter anymore, it's X. X, I know. Um, yeah. X, yes. Um, and you don't tweet anymore, you, you post, I guess. But yeah, X was filled with um, considerable unhappiness about this. And essentially, as you noted, Covington Bishop John Eifert, uh, announced to members of Our Lady of Lourdes Parish in Park Hills, Kentucky, that uh, he had asked for, politely, obviously, the, the resignation of uh, Father Shannon Collins, and then also removed the parochial vicar, uh, Father Sean Kopsinski, uh, and doing so uh, after what he described as uh, the emergence of serious concerns about their pastoral leadership. Uh, the, the parish itself is well known as a location for the, the TLM, in the Diocese of Covington. But as, as Bishop Eifert wrote, the dismissals he felt were necessary because he became aware that Father Collins had preached in the parish that the, the sacrifice of the Mass is celebrated in the current Roman Catholic liturgy is, quote, irrelevant and preserves literally nothing of the old, and that the reform of the liturgy was motivated by hatred towards traditional Catholics in the ancient liturgies of Rome. And... The bishop uh, went on to note that both priests uh, maintained, quote, these errors and refused the opportunity to renounce them, okay. which, as far as the bishop is concerned, disqualifies them from being granted permission to publicly celebrate the sacraments uh, using the 1962 Roman Missal and from leading a personal parish like Our Lady of Lourdes, is how he put it. Gee. Uh, I'm just... I don't know. It's It's... 
it's one thing to it's it's one thing to note um, preferences and make theological observations on the various forms that the mass has taken over our history. It's another thing to basically denude it of sacramental power, which is, <laughs> which it sounds like these these priests were doing. Uh, yeah. So. Do we know what? Um, do, do we know? Will they yeah, resign? Or uh, I, I, they are priests under authority, so uh, I expect, as we have seen in a few other cases, uh, the the weight of uh, the law is on the side of the bishop. Yeah, right. And uh, it's another example, unfortunately, too, of um, how an entire parish now has been impacted uh, by their comments and by what certainly bishop. Eifert feels is a necessary step, uh, which is, uh, as it says at the, on the parish website involved, that the arrangements are being made for a future location for the Latin Mass and for a priestly ministry to the flock of uh, the personal parish. But the, the problem is that right now, or as certainly as of uh, just a few days ago, they, they were not having the sacraments there, which is, uh, to my mind, a great tragedy. It is. It is. Good heavens. Um yeah, well, that uh, let's let's take a look here. Uh, Cardinal Zen is uh, in the news. Was uh, he ninety-two years old now? Um, but every time he speaks, he's somebody you know worth hearing. This is the the uh, cardinal. Well, I don't think he, he's he's not the ordinary any longer. Um, no, no, but, uh, he is the uh, the bishop emeritus of Hong Kong. Yeah, that's right. But he weighed in on the this uh, well, I don't know what you call it, the declaration for Ducia supplicants. <laughs> well, we always have to ask now which one. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it's been it's been walked back in so many different ways. Um, well, and clarified, and, and other things. Yeah, uh, yeah. But Colonel Zen uh, has. Become... I'll tell you what. Well, why don't you hold it there, Matthew? I hear the news, uh, the m- m- music okay. coming up. Understood. And we'll pick it up in just a little while. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, our topic: the world. Taking a look at Catholic stories uh, from across the globe. I'm Al Cresta. Ray Garendi. What's looking back at you at age 22? What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well, the way kids are turning out nowadays, counting my blessings. Parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say he's one in a hundred? Morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred. Then you be a one in a hundred parent. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. Here's the new challenge. At least one hour a week 
in front of the Blessed Sacrament with the goal of an hour a day in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I had a guy come up to me and he says, Father, you know, I'm doing a lot of things. I'm, I'm in a men's fellowship. I pray with my wife every day. I go to Mass every Sunday and, and usually a couple times during the week. I read scripture. He goes, I want more. I said, do you pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament? He said, outside of Mass, no. I said, I think that's the more. See, all these saints, these are the ones who surround us. These are the ones who ran before us. These are the ones who fought well, who kept the faith. They would tell you, as would every single saint in heaven right now, you cannot run this race if you don't spend time with the Master. Whatever else we're doing, it's second, third, and fourth. First things need to be first. And the first thing is to be with the Master. And the Master is Jesus. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. I'm sorry we had to let Matthew go because we only had 60 seconds left. And uh, I thought we had two minutes left, and I was wrong. So let me first of all congratulate uh, another member of the EWTN radio family, WGIC, 94.9 FM in Clarksville, Tennessee. They're celebrating seven years with us this week, and congratulations out to Deacon Dominic Azara and his team there at Immaculate Conception Parish, really from all your friends here at EWTN. Next week, I will be participating in the Good News Marriage Cruise, and we've got some outstanding guest hosts uh, lined up for you uh, tomorrow. Gary Mishuda will be taking the seat here, talking about martyrdom with uh, his friend and longtime colleague, Rob Corzine. So I hope you uh, join us tomorrow here on Cresta in the Afternoon. And again, uh, pray that this Good, good News Marriage Cruise goes as well as our previous Escapades. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.